The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. You're looking, uh, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We begin this new chapter. And unity is the first thing that Paul is going to hit here. Now, as I begin, I just want to ask this question How are your relationships? How are your relationships in your family? How are your relationships with church friends, coworkers? Paul knew this to be so critical that he really focuses in on this whole idea of unity. And if you're in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and affection, and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. In the last four verses of chapter 1, in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul speaks very critically about the need of strong relationships. Strong relationships that can build with the Lord, build sound doctrine, and build in the lives of people. I can remember it was a a warm summer evening. I was probably eight, maybe ten. I can't remember the exact date. But I grew up in Vermont, and uh, we'd had a wonderful dinner. And I was uh, the youngest of two boys and two girls. And we got along great. Uh, we had just a wonderful time. And I, and I recall this one incident because it's indelibly written on my mind. Um, we were having dinner. We were laughing. All I remember is my dad, for whatever reason, was real funny at the table. And we were just laughing. And, and our unity was so strong. Our, our fun was just, I mean, we were just having a great family moment. And my mother had a um, watermelon. And we loved that. And, of course, you know, with watermelon come the seed fights, Right? So the mother tells us to take it outside, but we go out and we have fun. And I don't know what it was, but at eight years old, I was deadly. I could hit a fly at 10 paces. I mean, I was good. My sister, on the other hand, could wash a fly at 10 paces. You know, the girl spit. You know, it was awful. So we got this, this seed fight going on, and it's wonderful. And we're just having a blast. And, of course, my one sister's had enough. And she's telling me to stop. Well, what eight-year-old stops when her sister says stop? So I kept pressing and pressing, and then finally I got half the watermelon on the side of my head. And I let out a string of words that I didn't have a clue what they meant, but they sounded really good when the neighborhood boy said them. And we went from this time of wonderful unity and laughing and carrying on to me being in the bathroom over my dad's knee, getting a yardstick broke over me. And it just showed how quickly, how fast, a wonderful experience could turn when two parties want their own way. And that's a real simple, simple, comical way to talk where Paul is getting into here. Because it's a matter of unity, and there are two reasons why unity is so necessary in the church. The first is that it's necessary in a time of war. By that I mean Christians are often besieged by forces of this world. 
And they must draw together if they are going to defend the gospel and successfully advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul had in mind in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, when we turn to the family, we find that the danger of warfare is at best second place. For what if the opposition should let up? What if Satan should relax his attack and everything seems hunky-dory? Does everyone just fly off on their own way and do their own things? Well, of course not. Because we know that the necessary dangers that lurk, the real reason for Christian unity lies rather in our mutual relationship to Christ and what, he, and what we know of him. This relationship is lasting. My unity to you and your unity to me is solely dependent on our relationship to Christ because it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. In the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul lays down a foundation of four solid legs in dealing with unity. Number one, because there is encouragement. Number two, because there is comfort in his love. Number three, because there is fellowship in the Spirit or participation in the Spirit, depending on your translation. And four, because there is an experience of the affection and sympathy of God or tenderness and compassion, again, depending on your translation. All words meaning the same thing, but uh, from coming from a different angle. Because if these four things, because of these four things, you and I are to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And it's because we are members of God's family and have learned from him that we must have this peace and unity with each other. Now, let's be honest at this point. We will always be tempted to disunity. There are always going to be things come into our life, whether it's sin, whether it's opinion, whether it's battling for positions. So we need to take precautions. I don't know if you recall years ago when they were looking to build a tunnel underneath Washington, D.C. to alleviate the heavy traffic. They wanted to get cars more freely from the Virginia side to the northeast D.C. side. And so they began to build a tunnel under the town, and the engineers noticed that they had a real problem because the walls of the tunnel were mere feet away from the water level of the tidal basin. And they said they were going to wind up with a lake halfway between the Capitol and the Washington Monument. As they began, they found out the engineers were true. So they were forced to build walls three times thicker than they originally intended and pumps that pumped 24 hours a day to alleviate the pressure. All this had to be done in a capacity to prevent what they knew was going to happen. We know disunity will happen. We know because it's Satan's goal. We know from experience we know from church history what's taken place. And in the same way, there is constant pressure from sin within Christians. 
These will eventually destroy Christian unity and render our witness useless unless we offset them by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in yielding in areas we need to go. These are not only realities in your relationship to Christ, but in your relationship to other Christians. So let's look at these legs for a few moments here. Number one, encouragement in Christ. The first reality to which Paul points to is encouragement. And this encouragement in Christ is the support Jesus gave to his followers to live together in love. Jesus taught the disciples that they were to covet the lowest places and always honor everyone else more highly than themselves. They were taught to have a servant spirit, to be a spirit of caring for others, meeting each other's needs, walking alongside each other's. It's interesting that if you recall from our study in the book of John, in John chapter 17, that great prayer that Jesus made for the disciples there as he was praying for them, but then he went on to say, and not them only, but to all those who will hear their message, and he called all of us into that very same prayer. And in John chapter 17, verse 21, he said, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. You see, in order for this to happen, God gave us the Holy Spirit the moment we were saved. We have him in us. And we are walking in him. And so our goal is to abide in the spirit, John 15. Abiding is dwelling. It's setting up our camp, our tent in him, in his will, in his way, so that he can lead us and guide us through all these situations. Now, I know that some take this verse to refer only to spiritual unity that believers possess, regardless of their actual deeds or feelings. I mean, there's a sense in which Those who are all in Christ are one in Christ. And of course, that's true. But that's not what John is talking about here. John describes a visible union, for it is a union that the world can see. Because it is part of his economy of witnessing to the world. So let me look at you this way by looking at verse 17, 21 again. And let me add verses 22 and 23. John 17, 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, let me stop there for a second. He's talking to Christians, all right? He's not talking to unsaved people here. He's talking to you and I who know Christ as our personal Savior. So, we're not only take talking about a place of position, we're talking about a place of surrender. So he's calling upon all Christians to surrender to their own will for the unity of the gospel. And why? So that the world may believe that Christ was sent from the Father. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So here we have a world of people criticizing Christians because in America, they don't look very unified. But Jesus is praying, Lord, help them to love each other like you loved me so that the world will know that you sent me because that kind of love is supernatural. That kind of love cannot be done of our own strength. Only when there's a yielding to the Spirit of God. And that's how the world knows that he came from God because it's not like anything they've ever seen or been able to do in themselves. The world thinks nothing of our spiritual unity. They believe what they see. So our unity must be completely unified so that the world sees the genuine article. This is the type of unity Jesus desired for you and me. So if you have difficulty with this, it might be because you're more interested in your own desires than his wishes. So the greatest witness the church has is its unity. It's an outward expression of an inward heart. That's the only thing that will draw men and women to Christ. Number two, comfort from his love. Comfort from his love. Paul knew that Christians are hard to get along with. Uh, but also he knew that Christians have a duty to see more in Christians other than their faults. Christians must also see the person, and they must love him or her the way they are, just as Christ loved us the way we are. The person who really loves the other Christian in this way will not seek to separate from them because they're cantankerous or because they see some minor doctrinal issue. He will seek to know him, to learn from him, and to help him on in his spiritual journey and build into each other. And as you seek to do this, always remember that your love is to be patterned after God's love. In fact, your love is actually to be an outpouring of his love. You are transformed by him. Your life is changed by him. So now the love that comes out is Christ's love, visibly. Jesus Christ taught this to his disciples just as before his crucifixion. John chapter 13 and verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give you. Now, let me pause here. A new commandment. Why is it new? Because it's not the old law. This is brand new. This is from Christ. And he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. It leaves no room for interpretation, does it? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Got pretty far before that. You are also to love one another just as I have loved you. Now, how on earth did Christ love us? Well, he loved you with a cross. He loved you sacrificially. He left heaven, came to earth to serve you. He said the Son of Man came to seek and to save. He came to serve, not to be served. All right? He came by making you eternally his. He came by forgiving your shortcomings just as you are. And he never changes his mind. Now, I know at this point, you think of certain Christians, you go, 
Really? You know, it's like that old cliche, you know? To be with the saints above, oh, that will be glory. But to be with the ones that I know below, well, that's another story. And we get that. We get that. I understand that. But he is saying, I have given you a commandment to love one another as I have loved you. You know what that says? It's not a choice. It's your responsibility to love each other. This statement leaves no room for qualification. Your love for other Christians must be like Christ's love for you. And whenever you're prone to get up with someone, just stop and think of how Christ loved you just the way you were. Now, does God cast away the one who offends him or makes a doctrinal mistake? <laughs> On the contrary, his love reaches out even farther and seeks to draw the sinner to himself. That love must flow through you and it must be your pattern. It must be your incentive as you live amongst Christians. But it can never happen on your own strength. You need the Spirit of God to lead you and to guide you. Now you may be saying, but, but what if they reject my love? What if they reject my attempts to make it right? Well... How long did you reject Christ before he came to you, before you accepted him? There is no end to forgiveness. There is no end to mercy. If Christ is in you, you are Christ to those people. He's your model. And he never stops forgiving us, no matter how much we screw up, no matter how many mistakes we made. He loves me, and he loves me for eternity. Number three, Christian fellowship in the Spirit. This is not merely a human fellowship, like a fellowship between friends who have a number of things in common. It is not man-centered. The fellowship that exists between Christians is a fellowship created by God. It exists not because we may have much in common, but because by grace we have been made mutually dependent members of his body. The dimension of, Christ, of the Christian fellowship is taught clearly in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, we read, that, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this means that because you have been brought into a vertical fellowship, you now have a responsibility for a horizontal fellowship to conduct yourself in the same compassion and love. But not only that, you cannot even claim one aspect of this fellowship unless you have the other. Because God goes on to say, in, or John goes on to say in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness and lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Think of that. Fellowship is cleansing. Fellowship in the blood of Christ cleanses. So when you come to church and fellowship with other believers, it is part of Christ's plan of cleansing. 
of making you whole, building into one another, growing by each other, being encouraged by one another, being lifted up by one another, all with the same spirit for a common goal. If this is the case, then this you will see major, major changes. So I ask you again, do you have a Christian brother or sister with whom you're not speaking, with whom you have serious problems with? If that's so, then I tell you on the authority of these verses that there is something lacking in your own relationship to God. Participation and fellowship in the Spirit is one of the strongest incentives for true harmony. You may say you're just backslidden or you're just going through something, but that's a dangerous ground to walk on. Paul urges, John urges, God urges, unity at all costs. Number four, the mercy of sympathy or compassion. Tenderness is a word that is used both of human beings and of God, but this is not true of the Greek word translated compassion. The word is always related to God. For example, Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. James 5, 11. Behold, we consider these blessed who remain steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in light of these verses, it's clear that Paul is appealing to the believer's experience of mercy from God. <clears throat> if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have experienced God's compassion. You deserve hell, yet he loved you and died for you. He leads you in this life and will lead you to heaven. You have known the greatest of all mercy. And he's simply telling us to lavish that same mercy on others. Love them like Christ loved you. So how then can we fail to show compassion to those who are also confess Christ as the Savior, even if they have offended you? Are they perfect? Are you perfect? Then they see, we are to see them through the eyes of Jesus. There's not one of us here this morning that if we were honest, would wonder how Christ could possibly love us. How could he possibly look past the things that I've done? How could he possibly look past my attitude at times? How could he possibly still there? But he is the Lord, he changes not. And when he chose to love you with his life, you're not getting away. And you and I need to allow him to love others through each one of us with that same compassion. We may disagree. You may not always get along on the same thing. Their view of things may be different, and you may know from Scripture they're wrong. But you're compelled to love them anyway and to show them the love of Christ and to pray for them that they would come into the proper truth. Are there divisions that should not exist? 
Let's go back to our beginning text this morning, Philippians 2, 1 and through 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If for no other reason than for his joy. It's not just designed for you and I to be happy. It's also a means of bringing him praise and glory. When you and I love each other, we're bringing honor to God. When we're compassionate and caring, we're bringing glory to God. And that's why he says, complete my joy. It's a completing process of what he has done in us. Now back in the book of John, verse, chapter 13 and verse 35, we read this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. There it is again. You see, it's not just for you, and it's not just for Christians. It's for the world around us. I'm telling you, one of the greatest failures in the church today is we isolate unsaved people. We isolate the world. We know how to separate from them, and we should in many ways. But what love and compassion do we show? We're known as hate mongers. Everybody knows what Christians hate. But do they know that we love them in spite of it? Because it's the love of God shown through us that draws men to him. The greatest witnessing tool available to us today is unity. And it's the greatest thing that God gives us. And that's why he says, complete my joy. Be of the same mind. That doesn't mean you always understand things the same. We're at different places. He knows that. People and their understanding is down here. Others have been studying a long time. They're up here. But there is a mutual respect and love for each other on the journey of this life. Now, let me end by giving you warning against disunity. In this warning to the church, Jesus Christ showed no concern about the shocks and the bruises his body would meet from eternal forces. In fact, he said in Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. He moved easily, unthreatened among sinners and criminals. But he cried out against the kind of disloyalty that comes from within. Few doctrines are more important than this one. Because the church is under constant attack, we need to be good students of the subject. Therefore, we find real serious problems with disloyalty. I take you to James chapter 1. <coughs> this verse, most of the time, is talking about having a double mind and faith, trusting and not trusting. But that same double-mindedness is a result of not loving each other as we should. And James 1, 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith with nothing, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Now, your faith may be up and down for sure, and one day you might, might be in a real unified mood, and the next day you're not. And as a result, your life is turned inside and out. James 4, verses 7 through 11. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Anytime you're concerned, anytime you feel disunity, we're to go to God, to be humble, and allow him to lead us in that situation. Because we are fellow members of the body, we need to apply ourselves to a mutual harmony. And because disease can diminish the effectiveness of the body, we must maintain habits of health and a constant program of exercise and harmony within God's bodybuilding program for the church. Unity must be a priority. And then, as Philip Mankinoff famously stated, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But with all things, love. The true success of any church requires unity. And you know, one of the greatest blessings about the table is it draws people to unity. When you come to the table, it is a time of cleansing. It's a time when we stop and think and remember what Christ had done for us. It's a time we remember on that faithful day when he hung on that cruel cross and gave up his life for us and rose again the third day. When we come together to the table, we're coming in unity because we all share a common bond, those of us, that is, who have accepted Christ as our Savior. We share a bond of unity in the Spirit of God. And we are practicing this until the day He comes for us, where we will be forever united in glory. So as you prepare your hearts for the table and as the men prepare to come, would you reflect on your own heart? Where are you in the place of unity? Where are you in relationships? Is there something that needs to be repaired? Doesn't matter who's right or wrong. But for the joy of the Lord, are we willing to take what needs to be done and to be more dedicated and unified to this church? Let's take some time and quiet reflection. Mm -hmm.